Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome to this bonus episode of Killing Dad Season 2, The Miscreants. I'm Melissa McCarty. We hope you enjoyed the eight-part series of a case that is crazier than fiction, a story in the shadows until now. Now, I have a special guest joining me today. I'm really excited about his story's remarkable. You don't want to miss this one. With older cases such as this, it can be pretty difficult to track down some of the key players who actually live through it. But with the help of some friends at the LAPD, I've found our guest. His name is Mike Orb. He's currently a deputy chief, excuse me, he's currently a deputy chief with the LAPD. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining me. Good morning. Really happy to have this conversation. Now, Kelly McClear, my partner in crime here, she wishes she could be a part of this special episode, but she's also running CrimeCon. And this year, there's about 7,000 attendees. So she's tied up uh, with the CrimeCon event. But I have you all to myself. And I want to start off by setting up where Mike Orb comes into play. Now, I want all of you, since you just finished the series or you're binging it now, think back to when Alvaro and Duck were on the freeway trying to evade officers in pursuit after they robbed a newspaper delivery guy up north for cash and his truck. They were being tailed by multiple patrol cars when a gas tanker truck was passing by and they recalled a scene from their favorite movie, The Terminator. They mimic it by shooting up the tanker truck, hoping it would explode and take out all tailing cop cars. But of course, it's just a movie. It's not real life. It doesn't go down like that. Here during this time, here enters Mike Orb. Mike, tell us what your title was back in 1994 when you were working with the LAPD and this call came in? So during that time, I was a police officer, three uh, field training officer assigned to central patrol. And, you know, that day began like many other days, you know, we attended roll call, you know, loaded up our car with our equipment, uh, began patrolling. And uh, my partner and I, uh, shortly after roll call, monitored a uh, radio broadcast of a pursuit involving homicide suspects, involving CHP and Kern County. Uh, the call indicated that, you know, there was a um, running gun battle where suspects were actively engaged in shooting at officers and, and other members of the freeway. Now, how many years did you have on the job? And was this technically your first shootout experience that you were witnessing? So, um, you know, I would say that during this time, I had about seven years on the on the department and worked a variety of different assignments. But uh, this time, you know, I was a I was a patrol officer. Um, you know, ha- have I witnessed a running gun battle? No, I have not. That was that would have been definitely my first. And what goes through one's mind when you're witnessing something like that? I mean, besides not getting hit by a flying stray bullet, you know, what, what was going through your mind and what were you trying to do at that point? 
so I, I I'll tell you um well we heard the radio broadcast you know my partner and I you know knowing that during that time it's the traffic is is pretty bad knowing that uh, you're you're not a lot there's not a lot of room to maneuver you know during in those freeways that we we thought that there was a highly high likelihood that they would have ended up in the downtown area so my partner and I started moving in that direction uh we were on Broadway moving northbound and my recollection is that you know we were continually asking for updates uh you know where the suspects are where the pursuit is and you know, we, we weren't getting the updates as quickly as we wanted. So we were on North Broadway, you know, approaching college uh, when the pursuit turns the corner and, and, is, and is facing us. Um, and I remember right away uh, seeing the suspect car, uh, the windshield blown out. Uh, we see some of the other cars involving uh, the CHP or Kern County. Their windshields were blown out. We see shots fired. Uh, we actually see the, uh, you know, you can see the puffs of smoke coming out of weapons and uh, impacts to the cars. So yeah, it was a, uh, it was quite the, uh, quite the wild scene. And and chilling when you describe it, because those bullets are whizzing by those officers in the cars in pursuit and any one of them could, could have been struck, you know, and thankfully they, they weren't at this point. Um, How did you end up, explain the hall of records in downtown Los Angeles, how many floors is it, um, you know, where they ended up and where you eventually ended up? So yeah, the hall of records is a uh, a multi-story building, housing the county records i think at the time and uh it was over there on temple and broadway i believe um so so ultimately what happened was uh i received a uh, a call from the incident commander who was my lieutenant at the time his name was uh lieutenant taylor and contacted us and asked us asked my partner and i to respond to the command post so we go down to the command post and you know, uh, moving through the intersection, we saw the aftermath of a traffic collision and involving the uh, suspect's vehicle. Uh, I remember seeing uh, empty magazines on the ground from, uh, it looked like it was most likely from other officers. Uh, we, we observed uh, casings, brass casings on the floor. And then I remember seeing that the windows had been shot out of of hollow records with numerous bullet impacts uh, at the front of the location. And these were massive, tall windows that we're talking about being blown out. Um, So that gives you an idea of the sheer force and how many bullets were blazing from both sides there. Um, And now, so we know that Alvaro during that run and gun uh, was wounded. He, He was shot. Uh, in the leg, where did he end up and where were you told to station and position yourselves? Um, so he's wounded, Alvaro is shot, and there's a female unarmed security guard, Veronica, uh, that was working that day that they ended up taking hostage. So what were your visuals when you were in place? So being briefed by the watch commander, um, the watch commander indicated uh, that uh, the, there were two homicide suspects that were wanted from up north. I remember him saying Kern County and that uh, that they 
had been involved in the shooting in the intersection and the windows were broken out. And in the process, they, they took a security guard hostage and they were secreted on the uh, ground level inside a um, kind of like a little cove area that was off to the side. And that's where they were holding the hostage at gunpoint. How did you size up? Uh, well, let, let me take a step back. What were your orders at the time? And where were you told to go uh, at that point? So I, so the incident commander advised me and my partner, he goes, hey, grab some ammunition, you know, grab a shotgun. He goes, I need you on the high ground. Uh, I'm going to put you right above the suspect. Uh, you'll be on top of the escalator. And your position is to hold that spot. He goes, and and he goes, don't let them out of the building. He goes, if they get out of the building, he goes, they have their run of that building. And he goes, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be very dangerous for everybody. So he goes, I need you to, I need you to hold your position there and, 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 and hold your ground. Okay. So you were actually inside the building with them or. Yes, I was. Okay. How did you get to that high ground inside the building without being shot? Like how, how, cause they ran in through the ground level. Uh, was there a, yes. a different way to enter the building? Yeah, there was, there was, uh, other entrances, uh, towards the rear and that's where we were brought into the rear and ultimately, uh, you know, brought in and, and we posted up uh, on the, um, the floor right above them, above the, uh, where the escalator was. Okay, so you had a shotgun. Um, did did that have a? I'm not that familiar, but did it have a scope, uh, a lens to look through, or or was is just uh, visually they were close enough to you? So so during that time, uh, I think when I look back, um, you know, we we didn't have a lot of specialized equipment for patrol, so it was just uh, uh, you know the issued the Ithaca shotgun, uh, and and that's pretty much what we had. That was our patrol's best weapon at the time. And what were they working with? What did they have? Well, I, I, I do remember they, I, I recall them having a uh, long rifle. I don't know what kind it was. I only saw that briefly, but I did see uh, later on a suspect. Uh, one of them had a handgun with a laser on it. Yeah. And that was the laser that they stole from the TNL gun store. Uh, another run and gun uh, gun battle in the streets of Reno, broad daylight for that silencer uh, and the laser scope that they ended up getting getting away with. This episode of Killing Dad, Season 2, The Miscreants, is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever find that you're just trying to fall asleep and your brain suddenly won't stop talking? I used to get racing thoughts so bad. I tried sleeping pills, over-the-counter, prescription, even wine before bed. Nothing worked, and it was starting to affect me at work. And it turns out, a great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do just that, and you can get all of those anxious or negative thought cycles out and find some relief mentally and emotionally. There's this sense sometimes that therapy is just only for people who have experienced major trauma, but it's really an opportunity to get in touch with the best version of yourself while learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries for yourself. 
So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash killing dad today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash killing dad. Um, so how would you describe how, how many feet or how close you were, you know, you, you could hear them, you could see them. What was the distance and, and what took place after that? So I, you know, uh, you know, one floor, so it could have been maybe 25 feet. And, uh, so we were, we were positioned right above the two suspects and the hostage. And, you know, they, they had themselves secreted, would have been looking down at my right. And there was, a, you know, an area that was kind of uh, out of sight from there. I, I think there were uh, doors that kept them from moving through the rest of the building. So they were kind of pinned in there and, and they couldn't go anywhere as well. So the only way would have been through the doors where they came in or through where I was positioned. That would have been their only way out of the building. So you knew they were murder suspects. You had no idea what occurred in Reno, how savage in, in, in the crime spree that led them all the way to the Hall of Records. What, how did you size up Alvaro and Duck when you're just looking at them with a hostage, you know, with their weapons? How did you size up their mannerisms, their behaviors, and, and how much of a threat they were to you and, and how you make decisions based on that? Yeah, so so the initial observations of that uh, running running gun battle with Kern County and CHP um, really painted the picture for me on on how violent they were. Uh, so we, my partner and I, knew we were we were in for it. We knew that we were going to have a very difficult time with these two individuals, and then and they didn't let us down. I'll, I'll say that during during the evening that we were with them. So you could hear them, but they saw you, I mean, in a line of sight the entire time and you could hear them. What were they? I know it's 1994, but, um, you know, something like this has got to be traumatizing and something you'll never forget. Cause I'm sure you've never lived through anything like this, you know, again, but what, what stands out in the conversations? Was there screaming, yelling, sobbing, just take us through everything you heard and, and saw in the dynamic of that situation. Yeah, so so we were there for several hours. Um, again, uh, they were positioned a little bit away from us. Um, uh, one of the suspects, they, I know they tried to communicate through the hostage many times. They would tell her something, and then she would she would repeat it to us. And then other times they would start yelling at my partner and I. But you know, pretty much uh, the 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 story was, or their request was. You know, we want money. You know, you know, we're demanding we're demanding money right now. If you don't give us money, we're going to kill this hostage. We're going to kill this lady. And then, uh, so she was saying, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me if they don't get the money. But then he would also come in, and uh, one of the suspects would periodically say, "I'm going to kill you," meaning my partner and myself. Uh, you know, we're going to kill her, meaning the hostage. So there was constant, uh, you know, communication between us and the suspects. Uh, 
And I know that they were also trying to talk to the crisis negotiator at the same time. How was young Veronica, a single mom at the time, what was her demeanor? How was she handling that from what you could see? Yeah, she was hysterical, no question about it. Um, probably, uh, you know, most traumatizing thing she could ever face is, you know, having a gun, you know, placed to her head the entire time and having individuals saying that they're going to kill her or kill the police. So, you know, she, she was in a really, really bad spot. There's no question about it. And um, so my thoughts, you know, my communication with my partners, you know, we knew that everything that we did had to be very, very critically done. Uh, meaning that if we misstepped, we knew that they were going to kill the hostage. So, so that was the constant, constant conversation with us. And, you know, our observations were that, you know, you know, we had a conversation, Hey, if we hear a gunshot, we, we are going to have to go down because that's the only chance we have of saving her. So, so these were the conversations we were having. Uh, but we said also that we're not going to go down there we're not going to go down there unless we absolutely have to. And we're not going to fire around unless we absolutely have to, because we knew that what that was going to trigger, it was going to trigger that, that exchange of gunfire and it was not going to have a good outcome. So visually they're, they're surrounded and they're blocked in. So they can walk a few feet, look up at you, say something and then walk out of your, your gun's line of sight. Uh, you know? it, was, it wasn't even that. It wasn't even that. I mean, there was no room for them at all. So there's only a couple feet to the side. So what this one, the one suspect did, he would lay down on his back and he would kind of just put his hand around with the gun and have his gun around the corner and, and, and looking at us trying to paint us with his laser. So he did that several times throughout the the evening where he was trying to see if he can get a shot off at us. You know, that alone, I will tell you this, that alone, when, when he painted us with the laser and we saw that handgun, you know, legally, you know, we could have protected our lives at that point. But we were so concerned that, that you know, they were going to kill this hostage if we did that our cover afforded us the opportunity to wait. And we did this by verbalizing saying, you know what, you don't want to do that. You know, you know, put the gun away. You don't want to do this. This is going to be, you know, this is going to end up badly. So, so we continue to verbalize ourselves, but yeah, it was, um, you know, you know, he, he threatened to kill us, you know, many times throughout the night. But he threatened, but then when you actually saw that laser on you, um, you know, what's that feel like? And how do you have the mental and emotional control to not fire? I mean, the, he's right. already a killer. I mean, how, how do you, how did you restrain and your partner? You had to also, re- you know, it's not just you. If he fires, you're, you both have to be on the same page. Um, yeah. How did you, what was going through your mind mentally? to tell yourself to, were you breathing through it? I mean, I, you know, it's like, how do you get into that Zen zone uh, when you have a laser on you? Yeah. Well, you know, we, we did was we limited the exposure of our bodies to gunfire. So he didn't have a clear shot at us at either time. You know, the, we saw the laser creeping up the walls, the side walls near us, 
but he never he never really would have had a clean shot. He could have got shots off, you know, and and uh, and made some attempts, but he really never had a clear shot, and we never exposed ourselves tremendously to that. So you know, it, when when we would kind of keep our eye out there to, to to watch the spot, if we saw him, you know, moving that weapon around, then we would move off to the side where we had complete cover. So. You know, our goal was not to, you know, give him anything. Uh, but, you know, again, our primary concern was was the safety of this hostage. And I will tell you, very easily, it could have been, you know, other people would have handled it differently. You know, and there was a high likelihood that somebody else may have returned fire on him and would have been legally justified to do so. I said, but, you know, my partner and I, our tactics, you know, we we were we were very good at what we did and that afforded us the opportunity to give some more time to try to work this out in a peaceful way the de-escalation tactics that was our primary concern but i'll tell you there were several times that you know you know my my finger uh, turned the safety off and my finger was on the trigger ready ready to deploy around there was no question about that but luckily we didn't have to and they were able to reset and, and reset ourselves. So um, it, was, it was that kind of night. Where was Veronica in those moments uh, when the potential uh, gunfire could have been exchanged? Would Was Veronica in the vicinity to have been struck? Well, she was off to the side. You know, they kept her out of the side. They kept her uh, um, not visible to us. So she, she was secreted as well with, with one of the other suspects. So, you know, and I had only seen one of the suspects the entire time. Uh, so yeah, they, they remained uh, hidden off to the side. I saw the one individual that would sneak on his back and try to try to paint us with his laser. That was our, our encounter. But, but our, our concern was as soon as they used her as a, uh, as a shield and put a gun to her head, that was what our big concern was at that time. So that was the duck because Alvaro was shot and she, he did spend most of the time with Veronica and she told me at one point she tried to aid his, his wound and he wanted to give up. He was in pain. He wanted to quit. Um, you overheard some conversations. I don't know if you saw it as well, but, um, the two brother-in-laws, it was, you know, Maria was, was the woman that they both loved. One was the brother Avaro. One was the husband duck who they had a, a baby boy with. Um, so, you know, husband, brother, they went on this crime spree. They ended up turning on each other a few times is what Veronica, Veronica told me off the record. Cause as you said, she's forever traumatized by this incident. What did you hear in those moments? We, we would hear, we would hear yelling, you know, uh, not discernible exactly what they were saying, but we did hear a lot of yelling going back and forth down there. So, so we, we kind of had some indications that, you know, that they were, you know, not getting along, uh, that they were maybe, um, uh, divided on what they were trying to accomplish, but, you know, still regardless of either one of them, I knew that one of them was, was truly, truly a problem. And that was my, that was one of my main focuses that this, despite what was going on between the two, you know, the one, the one individual was, was, was really focused on, uh, you know, on violence and, and I, you know, 
what I saw from him, I, I thought he was going to, you know, I thought he was going to engage us in a gunfight at any time during, during that time we were there. Well, that was his plan is to go out guns blazing. Uh, if they didn't get the negotiated requests, which I mean, you know, it's something again, you'd see out of a movie. The prosecutor told me they asked for a million bucks and a pizza. Do you remember any of that or hearing any of that? Yeah, I remember, I remember hearing that, uh, you know, over the radio that they were, they were working on that, working on bringing in an armored car and, um, and working that. And, um, you know, several hours later, we were relieved by SWAT. SWAT came in and took our positions and, you know, we were debriefed and told them everything we saw, the type of weapons that we saw, the, uh, engagement we had. And then, you know, I think it was our, uh, robbery homicide was asking us as well, you know, okay, tell us what happened. And, you know, you know, that's when they kind of indicated, you know, how many times did he threaten to kill you and how many times did he point a gun at you? And I told him I lost count. Badlands is an anthology series that blends history and true crime to tell the transgressive stories of some of the biggest names in Hollywood. This is not the Hollywood history you've heard before. These are uncensored, immersive, edge-of-your-seat storytelling. Host Jake Brennan, creator and host of the award-winning music and true crime podcast Disgraceland, explores the most insane stories surrounding the world's most interesting Hollywood icons. Now, Badlands has covered many actors, directors, and more, including the mysterious deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Natalie Wood, Tim Allen's former career as a low-level drug dealer, and the curse of the movie Poltergeist. Also, Halporn star John Holmes got caught up in the infamous Wonderland murders, and so, so many more. New episodes of Badlands are released every Wednesday with bonus episodes released every Friday. Subscribe to Badlands on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeart Radio app, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. Were they ever considering the armored truck full of money to be delivered or was that just uh, a ploy to just um, buy some time? No, I... Uh, I was under the impression that they were they were working on getting an armored car or they had an armored car and they were bringing it in, but uh, I don't recall seeing it. Wow. Um, were, do you remember what you were saying when he was like, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you? Do you remember, you know, what did you keep repeating one thing or did you stay silent or did you want him talking? Well, I would, I would tell him, you know, uh, I, I remember my conversation was that, you know, you need to you need to give up. I said you're not getting out of this building. You 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 need to give up. And uh, you know those were the conversations that we had. You know, you know pretty clear. Um, you know I didn't want him to think he was going to have the advantage over us or intimidate us because you know our command presence we were we were right on the money with it. You know indicating you're not leaving the building. You, you know you know put the gun down, give up. Um, you know let it let, let's get everybody home. And uh, so we, we did our best. And but yeah, it was uh, probably one of the most intense times I had as a police officer. Yeah, it's uh, I think Blake Chow, who, you know, with the LAPD, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it wrong, but he just said, you know, you train your whole career and eventually it comes down to mere seconds of chaos and violence after, you know, career of training. How what you know, when you were walking away relieved by SWAT. Um, did you want to walk away and, and how did you, um, shake that off as you were driving away? Yeah. So, so yeah, it was, um, 
I, I think you reflect later on. You don't really pay attention at the time. You're just trying to get through the incident itself. But, uh, you know, yeah, reflecting on it, uh, you know, we all came out of this, you know, we were very fortunate to come out of this, you know, unharmed. And uh, I was very surprised that we were able to get out of that without engaging in a, uh, a gunfight with these two. Just from from my encounter with him, with him, you know, pointing a weapon at us, would, uh, you know, it's just incredible. And, uh, I, again, I think that... Uh, had we done anything wrong, it would have had a different outcome. I think it would have had a, you know, a much worse outcome. So just by, you know, having the discipline and utilizing the best tactics we could at the time, uh, I, I think that that's why we had the outcome that we had. And then obviously SWAT came in and their CNT and, you know, that just continued the work that we started. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful. And uh, um, I think everything, uh, despite you know the violence that was occurring up to that point, it, it had the it had a great outcome for that night. They ended up surrendering and walking out with Veronica. Um, when you before you transitioned with SWAT, did you advise them? You know, hey, you know, don't engage. That's our approach, and I think you should stick with this because it. You know, they could have taken over and guns blazing. How did you get on the same page? Well, I, and we just, you know, we, we had just told them everything that we had gone through. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, you, you can't really tell, you know, another officer how to do it. I know that SWAT's highly trained, uh, probably one of the best trained in the country. And, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. You know, they, they, they have well discipline and, you know, they had a lot better tools than I had to, let's just say that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, so it's January 16th, 1994. Um, and this is coming to a close. The uh, Alvaro and Doc are about to walk out, surrender, give up their weapons, give up Veronica. Um, and you're just walking in your door after the craziest night of your entire career. Um, you walk in and hours or two later, not even what happens. Yeah. Uh, Shortly after I got home, uh, you know, the building started shaking and uh, ended up being, uh, you know, really massive earthquake that hit Los Angeles. So, you know, you know, you just got get done with 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 one incident and then you fall right into another, and uh, so so that you know ends up in, in a different chapter where you know now we're back at work and uh, the department's mobilized for a major earthquake uh, in the city. Do you remember what that felt like, and then where you were mobilized? Yeah, well, I and, and ended back back right right back in the city. I was on uh, on D watch, which is uh, the night shift, twelve uh, hour shifts, uh, beginning at six at night to six in the morning. And uh, we're I was back in back in downtown on on my patrol location. How did you? later come to reflect on going through probably the two most traumatic, most profound moments of chaos and violence of your life hours apart. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, when, when you, when you join the department, you really never take into consideration that, you know, these things happen and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you're facing reality and this is what the job is. And, you know, you're, you hope that your training and, and all your experience comes into play. 
and that you know your your tactics are are sufficient and uh, our our tactics and our training got us through that night and got us just got me through the rest of my career as well. And how did you how did this leave an impact or a little mark? You know, and it was it the combination of the double hit with the earthquake and the the shooting, or did one? I mean, obviously, it's dramatically different. One is a city crumbling. Another one is a, a savage killer threatening your life with a laser at your head for several hours. Like how? You know what? What has left a mark? Yeah. So, it's, like I was telling you about the laser, the la- the the laser never never painted me. So I was fortunate about that. The laser was bouncing around me quite a bit. I will say that, but um, uh, yeah, you, you know, I don't think you can get any closer than we were to uh, a, a violent exchange of gunfire with with two uh, murder suspects that had the intent to kill us and that hostage. So um, I, I don't, I don't know if uh, you know anybody could really prepare themselves for that. You just, you know, fall back on your training and, and your experience. And those those are the things that get you through the day. And, you know, subsequently, you know, there's there's multiple things that happen through your career. But definitely that one, uh, you know, although it happened, you know, several years back, you know, you, you remember the, the details uh, and remember some very, uh, very critical points in that encounter that you'll, you'll stay with you forever. Yeah. And and like you said, you know, the laser, you saw it crawling up the walls and trying to locate your head or your chest. I'm sure you were in a bulletproof vest, but do you, if he got, if he did have a clear shot, do you think he would have uh, used it? I I really do. I really believe that if he had the opportunity and he thought he had the advantage, he had already, he had already demonstrated his intent to, to shoot police officers. He had already demonstrated that, you know, he, he wanted, he wanted to, he wanted to engage the police. Uh, so yeah, there was no, no doubt in my mind, if he had a shot, he would have taken it. And if he thought he had the advantage, he would have, uh, again, uh, you know, it was fortunate for us that, you know, we were, we were able to get through this incident and fortunate that we were able to, uh, save that hostage at the end of the night. But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, a lot of good work by everybody that night that, that made this happen. Yeah. And remarkable. Also the, the hostage negotiator was remarkable as well. And of the hundreds and hundreds of bullets fired in downtown Los Angeles, uh, not one officer was harmed, which is just stunning. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe and thankfully so. Um, what, what last question, um, how do you look back on this and have you ever seen anything like it? You know, how would you gauge these two men? You've come across killers your whole career. That's what, that's what you do. Um, what's, what's different about these two? I think that when I look at this incident, you know, and I've learned things subsequent that I didn't know at the time, but um, that, you know, you got two individuals that are, that are intent on, on shooting and killing that, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a miracle that everybody made it out of there unscathed that night. Uh, you know, uh, a suspect that's intent on committing murder and going out in a, um, a gunfight with the police. 
you know, again, I'm surprised that that they that it did not happen. It was, uh, you know, learning that later on that I, I look back and reflect that I'm surprised that that the outcome wasn't much different. But uh, again, we were very fortunate that night. Yeah, I mean, just everything about this is is just something no one has ever heard of or seen before. Um, Mike Orb with the LAPD, you are an example for all in what you do for our community, you know, now over the years, and especially back in 1994, you know, just deserves the utmost respect and admiration. And, you know, I think we're lucky that you've been one of the city of Los Angeles's guardian angels all this time. So thank you for being you. Oh, thank, thank you. And, uh, much appreciated. It was uh, it was an untold story, and I was I'm, I'm glad you're able to to locate it and tell the story. Um, much thanks. Yeah, it's just it's hard to believe. And also, just quick note on behalf of Kelly McClear and myself uh, to all of the listeners out there who have stayed with us through Killing Dad and season two, of the Miscreants. Uh, thank you for giving us your time. <laughs> 